This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the push for more offensive weapons for Ukraine to protect civilians from Russian atrocities. Then, tracking Putin's next moves, a former CIA operative weighs in on the state of Russian intelligence. And massive sanctions levied against Russia's ability to sell oil and gas, what it means for the global energy market. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Western leaders have vowed to hold Russians accountable for alleged war crimes in Ukraine. But while tough talk is welcome, my guest says that the current priority must be to protect the Ukrainian population from further crimes against humanity. Peter Dickinson is the Ukraine Alert editor at the Atlantic Council. He's also the chief editor of the Business Ukraine magazine and joins us from the Czech Republic. Peter, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You write that the scale of Russia's crimes in Ukraine is sadly not surprising. Why are you not surprised? Well, if we look at the rhetoric that's been coming out of the Kremlin for the last few years, never mind the last few months, um, it's pretty much explicitly genocidal. Um, Vladimir Putin has consistently said he does not recognize Ukraine's right to exist. He regards Ukrainians as Russians. Uh, he doesn't think that Ukraine is a legitimate country. He believes Ukraine is established on what he calls historically Russian lands. And he has taken, in fact, in the last year to referring to Ukraine in public as an, an anti-Russia, uh, an existential threat to Russia. Um, so, and then, of course, we have the entire narrative that Ukrainians are Nazis somehow, despite the fact they have a, a, a democratic system, a democratically elected Jewish president, uh, and far-right groups are marginalized in Ukraine. The, in the last parliamentary election, far-right groups collectively came together because they've, they've historically done so poorly in elections, and they only managed to get 2%. So the idea of some sort of a far-right uh, uh, threat from Ukraine is nonsense, but it seems to play very well in Russia. So we see a country where the people are being told Ukrainians are Nazis, they're enemies, and their country has no right to exist. But Peter, aren't, isn't the Russian population sophisticated enough not to believe the, the propaganda? Um, well, unfortunately, I think there is a certain desire to believe it. I mean, there's a long history of this. This didn't begin under Vladimir Putin. For, for centuries, Russians have been encouraged to see Ukrainians as a, a sort of subgroup of Russians. Uh, Ukrainians are the closest of the many nations to Russia within the broader Russian Empire. Uh, Putin, recent, in recent, over the last decade, has talked a lot about the so-called Russian world, by which he means the greater Russia beyond the boundaries of today's modern Russian state. Uh, and, and many Russians share this sense that Russia has been uh, the victim of a grave injustice after the collapse of the Soviet Union, because so many ethnic Russians and other people who regard who they regard as Russians, mere, often merely by the fact that they speak Russian, uh, were cut off from 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 modern Russia. So there is a great there's a, there's a very deeply ingrained sense of resentment in in Russian society about the Soviet collapse, and a lot of that comes out in, in aggression towards Ukraine, unfortunately. So let's talk about U.S. support for Ukraine. Do you think the Pentagon is sending the right weapons, the ones that Ukraine needs right now? 
Well, when the war began and in the lead up to the war, the America was one of the leading nations in terms of supplying Ukraine with weapons. They, they provided a, a number of, uh, of very important shipments. Uh, in particular, I think the most important, without any question, would be the Javelin anti-tank weapons that were supplied in large numbers. They've had a, a major impact on the course of the first month of the war. They've allowed Ukraine to inflict pretty shocking uh, uh, costs on the russian invasion force and and win the battle for kiev uh, russian forces have actually after having advanced on kiev in the first days of the war they've since retreated and have pulled out of that they've pulled their forces out completely from north of the north of uh, ukraine and that is largely because they've been forced to do so by the defeats they've suffered uh, at the hands of ukraine partly because of the weapons ukraine has had from america however now now ukraine needs to move beyond the kind of ambush tactics, insurgency-type tactics that they've been using to this point very effectively. They need to fight a conventional war. They need to push Russia out of areas that the Kremlin currently controls in the east and the south. And in order to do that, they need heavy weapons. They need so-called offensive weapons. That means tanks, missile systems, aircraft, helicopters, uh, and artillery, which they don't, they're not yet receiving, which they, need, they desperately need to receive from America and other partners. But, you know, the White House and Congress have been very reluctant to send offensive weapons for fear of escalation. I mean, isn't that a legitimate fear? Well, a lot of people in Ukraine would say no. Uh, I, think, I think, you know, the, the, the narrative that we're hearing quite often these days from Ukraine is like the, the, they're questioning the entire notion of, of offensive and defensive weapons. They're saying, well, look, we're fighting for our lives here. We're defending our country against a, a clear, you know, a clear and an obvious criminal invasion and, and the clear intent to, to eradicate our nation. Anything you give us is defensive in nature. Anything you give us is by, by definition defensive. So there's a lot of resistance to that def, that, 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 that definition. Um, fears of escalation. I mean, well, what more will Putin do? I mean, of course, he has the, the nuclear threat is always there. But beyond that, I mean, they're pretty much doing anything. They, they you know, Where is the escalation going to come from? Are they going to bomb cities? They're already bombing cities. Are they going to be conducting massacres? They're already conducting massacres. So quite frankly, uh, there's not a lot of patience in Ukraine for talk of, uh, of, of moderation or fear of escalation. You know, does the Ukrainian army, though, have the capacity and the training necessary to put those types of weapons to use? Well, that's a good question. Um, it, it, there are, of course, issues regarding training, regarding the technical aspects of these, uh, of the, of these weapons. Um, I think, in short, it's going to be a challenge in some areas. There are some weapon systems that would be more challenging, that would be more complex to give, um, and there are, there are some that are less so. Uh, Ukrainians in general are extremely fast adapters. Ukrainian society is, is known for having a very strong IT sector and for being very quick to pick up on things. This is pre-war, of course. Um, that's the nature of the society because it's been in such a state of flux for the last last few decades. Um, and that, that applies to the military as well. They've been very quick to pick up on things. They've been very innovative in their use of things like drones in this conflict, things like, you know, and applying the weapons they've already received. So I think they can learn. It would be challenging in some respects. So I think that yeah, certainly uh, accommodations have to be made there. And, and when, the, when the, the American side is looking what to provide, certainly it's a factor to think about how quickly and how effectively these, these, these weapons can be, can be deployed. And Peter, uh, quickly, in the, in the 30 seconds we've got left, what are the chances that Ukraine could defeat Russia militarily? Chances are very good. Um, if they, uh, as Winston Churchill said, give them the tools and they will finish the job. Uh, they have proven themselves to be extremely competent in military. They've surpassed all expectations. 
as I mentioned earlier, they've inflicted severe costs on the Russian forces. They forced Russia out out of northern northern Ukraine. Uh, Russia's Russian forces are now licking their wounds and preparing to to move uh, their forces to the east. They can win this war if they receive the weapons that they need. And if they don't win this war, uh, the, the, the West will have to fight the conflict later on with much higher costs. So it really makes sense for all parties to arm Ukraine now. All right, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. Coming next, what we know about the Russian intelligence services, straight ahead on Government Matters, predicting what Putin might do next. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. As Russia's actions become more brutal and unpredictable in Ukraine, intelligence becomes central to understanding Putin's next moves. Ralph Moat Larson is former senior CIA operations officer and currently senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. Ralph, welcome. Nice to be here, Mimi. Thank you. You spent a lot of your career in Moscow. Have Putin's actions surprised you? Yes. I would say in spite of the fact that I served two tours there and made Russia kind of my life's work in CIA, uh, I was surprised by two things, really. The almost crazy invasion he launched, which makes no strategic sense to me, and then the barbarity, even though I would expect him, based on the history in Chechnya and other places the Russian military has gone in, we, we should expect this. It's still shocking me, like I think for everyone, to see these disturbing images coming from, from Ukraine. Wait, so what do you make of that, uh, you know, brutality? Is this about inexperienced soldiers going rogue, or do you think there were explicit orders from the top? I don't think any of us should excuse one iota the war crimes that are being conducted in in Ukraine by by experience level or who ordered it uh, I don't think right now we know the answer to those questions except we know it's happening and we need to resolve who's responsible but ultimately it falls in Putin's hands because he's the person who sold this narrative this ridiculous false claim that this is denazification that people are taking as their inspiration, whether it's the Russian people who support him or the uh, soldiers who are, or the commanders and then the soldiers they're ordering out to do this. And we can see the shelling, the indiscriminate shelling with, their, with our own eyes, shelling apartment buildings, uh, shooting people on the streets. So everyone up the entire chain of command to Vladimir Putin should be held responsible for what's happening in Ukraine. This is not war. This is more genocide and, frankly, war crimes being committed in every engagement. So, Rolf, uh, at this point, what can you gather uh, as to how good or how bad Russian intelligence is? Well, it was a failure for Russian intelligence uh, in the sense that we think of our intelligence failures in the United States and, and that that they failed to inform Putin of the uh, likelihood of failure in the two ways that he's, he's, he's discovered it. One is that the Russian military is not as powerful as he thought it was, modern, powerful, capable of, of quickly, which I expected. You asked me at the outset, what did I expect? I did. I expected them to, to mount something of a very quick invasion that would take Kiev in a matter of days. Well, that didn't happen. So that's a failure for Russian intelligence. The second failure for Russian intelligence is, of course, the incredible resistance of the Ukrainian people. They don't want the Russians there. And uh, I would say that that's kind of shocking, considering the Russians have been in force in intelligence terms in Ukraine for decades since it was part of the Soviet Union. So to think that they could so spectacularly not understand 
that the people don't want them there and that this that this war ultimately will fail is a is a massive intelligence failure he started a war he can't win you know you've said that the risk of uh, nuclear is not zero under what circumstances does Russia use a tactical nuclear weapon I think the most worrisome thing about nuclear weapons is that for decades now we haven't really seriously considered that anyone being mad enough we used to use that <clears> word term in the in the uh, in the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, that they would be mad enough to use nuclear weapons, that they were there as some kind of deterrent. And, he, and Putin is using nuclear weapons as a deterrent. But when I said I don't think there's a uh, non, I think there's a non-zero chance they could be used, is I think we have to go back and reconsider everything we thought about nu the limits to which Vladimir Putin will go to to try to win this war. And I don't think, for example, using a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine or against NATO to provoke a NATO defense uh, using our Article 5 obligations should be off the table. And I'm sure that American planners in the Pentagon and the White House are at least preparing themselves for the possibility of that kind of a terrible escalation. And, and Rolf, what about chemical or biological weapons? Would Putin have any moral qualms about using WMD? I think we can take moral qualms off the table. Uh, right. I mean, he, we, we, we can go back to his origins of his rise to power. He came to power in Russia in 1999 and immediately launched the Second Chechen War, which rubbled the capital Grozny and killed thousands of Chechens, brutally submitted them into Russian rule. That's his playbook. And, and so there were no moral qualms then about war crimes. The world didn't really see much of it. Now we're seeing with our own eyes how far he go. But he's, it's a reprise of that playbook. So yes, chemical weapons are definitely on the table. I think the West up to now, President Biden and other Western leaders have, have done a great job of ensuring Putin knows that's a game changer. I don't really know myself what that means, but I think Putin has to understand whether he's using chemical, biological, or or uh, nuclear weapons, that it's a game changer of some kind, and it takes us into uncertain territory. We shouldn't be announcing in advance, by the way, <laughs> what we will do, but we should ensure that Vladimir Putin understands that things that he is currently calculating, we, we are limits to which we're not willing to go, may have to be reset in the event that he escalates to WMD. Rolf, who has influence over Putin in Russia? I mean, is it the oligarchs? Is it his... Um, security apparatus, who is it? Yeah, I'll simplify something that's probably a little more nuanced uh, and it's a little controversial the way I describe it, uh, but I believe this for 20 years, so I'll express it now, which, because I think it's, it's, come, it's playing out this way. The oligarchs have no influence. And as Westerners, we have a hard time understanding a country, there are very few countries in the world like this, that have really no political, even a country like Iran or, or uh, some of these other countries, uh, Egypt, that are authoritarian governments, have a kind of a democracy within the, the one-party state, not in Russia. Uh, there's no real opposition. Anyone who opposes him is either liquidated or imprisoned. It's against the law, by the way, right now in Russia to, to say that Russia's in a war. So this shows you the extent to which he's willing to go to crush dissent, and he's always done that. So the only people I would say that have a significant influence on him are the people he depends on to remain in power. And those are three people, essentially. That is Alexander Bortnikov, the head of the Russian Security Service, FSB, probably the largest intelligence organization in the world. 
Second is uh, Nikolai Patrushev, who's the former FSB director, who is also the head of the Security Council in Russia. And the third person is Shoigu, who's the Minister of Defense. So in the Russian system, they call that the special services. All and right. those are the three people who control. Well, we're, all, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope, hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Coming next, the U.S. and EU are piling sanctions on Russia, what it could mean for the global energy market. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Russia is one of the world's largest oil and natural gas exporters, but bans and restrictions on those exports could lead to a serious energy crisis and more pain for consumers. Emily Holland is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. She studies the geopolitics of energy. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, Europe has been a lot more dependent on Russian energy than the U.S. How have they been faring lately? I think it's really important to note that even prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Europe was already in an energy crisis. So as far as, far back as fall 2021, Europe was already having historically high energy prices and some countries like Moldova were actually had declared a state of emergency because of, of the severity of this energy crisis, which was caused by sort of a confluence of factors, probably most prominently, which was the sort of unexpected roaring back of demand from Asian economies from the post-pandemic. So entering the crisis, they were already in a, a major energy crisis, and natural gas prices, oil prices, coal prices were already sort of at historic highs. And then as the sort of worry of a Russian invasion began to loom nearer, prices started to freak out even more and get higher and higher. And so this has led Russia to um, Europe to, to really the precipice of a completely full-blown energy crisis. We have historically high prices in all three major commodities, oil, natural gas, and coal and solid fuels. And so uh, prices are out of control, and this has led to a lot of problems. Already sort of um, energy-intensive industries are having to reduce their production to deal with this. Uh, the German uh, uh, Ministry of Finance actually just announced a uh, an emergency measure to sort of insulate some energy companies and some energy intensive industries from the prices that they're having to pay to, to meet uh, this sort of out of control global energy crunch. Well, how has the current uh, bans and restrictions on Russian oil and gas impacted the U.S. and then the global energy market? As most viewers know, uh, gas prices are pretty high at the pump. So that's one of the first things that consumers see are high prices at the pump. But that's just sort of the beginning of the story. The U.S. itself is actually not that reliant on Russian oil or gas. It only uses about 3% of Russian uh, oil for its daily consumption. So that can be replaced. But the consequence of all Western countries now sort of abandoning what is turning out to be toxic Russian energy supplies is that, of course, prices go higher. So in the U.S., we are seeing we are seeing very high oil prices at the pump, and these will these may go higher depending on what happens with sort of global oil markets. Um, and in Europe, this is this is even worse. They just announced a ban on the import of Russian coal and solid fuels, which is very significant for the Europeans. Uh, they are reliant on about on Russia for about 50 percent of their oil and for their coal and solid fuels, and that takes away about eight billion euros of trade a year. Uh, towards Russia. So far, they have not announced a ban on oil or natural gas um, because they are just so reliant on Russian oil and natural gas that it's going to be really painful for them to make those decisions. Well, let's go back to the price of gas here in the U.S. because there was a recent uh, ABC News Ipsos poll that indicates that the majority of Americans blame Putin and the oil companies for the high price of gas. 
So really, how big a factor is the energy embargo uh, on Russia on the price of gas here in the U.S.? This is certainly the administration's line, is that this is Putin's price hike. And in some senses, that is true. I mean, Russia is waging war in Ukraine. It is a blatantly aggressive state. And Russia is one of the world's largest oil and, and just in general, everything, uh, commodity exports, oil, natural gas, coal. So the fact that Russian assets are toxic means that the markets are turning away from them. This is contributing to high oil prices. But really what is contributing to high oil prices is the sort of energy policies of Western states. And so far that has been, okay, we're going to move away from Russian energy. Well, that institutes a, a mad scramble for every last drop of non-Russian energy leading into this crisis we were already in an energy crisis so when you start to remove significant uh, portions of the market which are russian commodities the rest of the world's prices go sky high that's just sort of the basics of supply and demand so emily now, given yeah. uh, sorry I, I was gonna say you know i wonder could the turmoil in the energy markets cause geopolitical instability that the u.s government will need to be prepared for what do you think Absolutely. So already we have seen just uh, relationships just completely upended so quickly over the last two months. So removing Russia as a supplier uh, from the market of certain portions of natural gas and oil has led the U.S. to pursue other relationships. So we've seen the Biden administration uh, make uh, sort of open overtures towards Venezuela. Uh, towards um, other places in the Middle East, right? So they're they're Iran. So they're 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 trying to begin new relationships because they know that to persuade other states to move away from Russian oil, there needs to be more oil brought to the market. That's just, we're already in a tight oil market. There's not enough to go around if we remove Russian oil. So making those overtures, for example, to Iran has then caused some other geopolitical backlash. The Saudis are actually furious with the United States for, for reaching out to Iran. So this has ripple effects um, uh, all over the world. Uh, this is causing a food crisis, which is going to probably lead to increased instability in the Middle East. So, so there's there's a huge knock-on ripple effect from the energy crisis. And I guess, I mean, we're out of time, but I know that your article was saying, you know, that the public is just going to have to get used to using less energy. Absolutely. The only way to sort of lessen this price increase is to use less. There's not enough to go around. And so if we want to get off of Russian oil, remove Russian oil and gas from the market, that means that we in the West need to consume less. All right. Well, Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gurgis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today 
and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.